Well, good morning to those, to those who don't know me. I'm, I'm Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, pardon my voice this morning. It's a, it's a little bit off, but, uh, but it's good to be here with you guys. Uh, I hope to meet some of you if I don't know you. I, I like to actually meet the people I'm speaking to regularly if, I, if I'm doing this. So if you have a chance and you haven't met me, please just come up, say hello, tell me you like my shirt and all that kind of thing. Open your, you, you've been with us through the book of Ruth. Go ahead and open your Bibles now to the very next book, the book of or rather the book of Judges. Open, open up your Bibles to the, to the book of Ruth. That's where we're going to be. For the next number of weeks, we will be in the book of Ruth. <clears throat> and I hope you're excited to go through the book of Ruth. We, we've never done this uh, in the nine years we've been at church. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going through all, all of this book with you guys on Sunday mornings. Now, do me a big favor. We, just, we're going to take some time today to go through the what I call the introduction to the book of Ruth, the first six verses. All right, we're gonna look at that in a moment, but before we do, we just wanna frame it for everybody. You know, what, what is this book really all about? How should we approach it? We wanna just take a moment to frame it for you. So if you would, I want you to, here's your, here's your homework. I want you to memorize Romans chapter eight, verse 28. All right, now usually we ask you to memorize a whole book of the Bible, so everybody will jump on this one, right? Just one verse. You know, everybody can do it this time. Just one verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it goes something like this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. All right? So I want everybody to memorize that as we're going through the book of Ruth. And here's why. The book of Ruth is one of the best illustrations of that truth whole lot of stuff is going to happen in the book of Ruth that you wouldn't necessarily think of as good, but it's true that for those who are called according to God's purpose and who love him, all things are working together for good. So I want us to keep that in mind as we read through the book of Ruth together. The second bit of homework I have for you, you, you thought you were finished with school, some of you. You got homework here. The second bit of homework is to read the entire book of Ruth in one sitting. So when you go home, if you can do it today, Read the entire book of Ruth. I've decided to spare you. I was actually going to do that this morning. Just read the whole thing all the way through. If you read as slowly and as deliberately as I do, it'll take you 13 minutes. So invest that 13 minutes. Read the entire book of Ruth in one sitting. It was actually meant to be read that way. It's a short story, perhaps the greatest short story ever written. The short story of this length anyway. All right, I'll, I'll give the nod to Jesus' parables. But of a, a story of this length, I think these are the, this is the greatest short story ever written. And you don't want to deprive yourself of what it sounds like or feels like as you read through the whole thing. So that's homework part number two. And then also, we don't know why the book was written. Or rather, we don't know who wrote the book, I should say. Who he is, who she is. We don't know who the author, the human author of the book of Ruth is. But we do know why it was written. Look, at, look really quickly at Ruth chapter 4, the very end of the book, <clears throat> and you'll see there's this kind of strange piece at the end where, where we start to get into who fathered whom and, and all that kind of a thing, but you get a sense, there, there, a spoiler alert here, at the end of the book of Ruth, there's a baby that's born. His name is Obed. You, you'd get to it eventually because you're all going to read the book in one sitting today anyway, right? Or, or Monday or Tuesday or something like that. But at the end of this book, there's a little baby named Obed who's born. And, and then it goes on to tell us that Obed became the father of Jesse 
and Jesse was the father of David. The book of Ruth then was written to show us that despite all the chaos and all the sin that was so rampant in the book of Judges, God was at work behind the scenes. This book takes place during the exact same time period as the book of Judges, as the first verse of the book will make clear. But it shows us, the book of Ruth anyway, that God was still at work behind the scenes. In fact, think of it this way. Some of you are artists and you'll appreciate this. If you've ever looked at a tapestry, you ever seen the back of a tapestry? What a jumbled mess of just seemingly random pieces of different color yarn going here, there, botched up. Few, few things are as ugly as the back of a tapestry. And then you turn it over and you see what the artist was up to all along. You see purpose and design, beauty. You, you see it all, form, it's all there. Something was happening when all you could see was the jumbled mess of the backside of the tapestry. If you take the book of Judges and Ruth together, Judges is kind of like the back of the tapestry. And Ruth is like turning it over and seeing what God was up to all along. All right, so, so take the time, again, read it all together like that. And then on another level, just to frame it for us, the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth was written to remind us that God can use ordinary people like us, the most unlikely and the most ordinary of people to move his purposes forward. It was written to remind us of that and that, and that our lives are always, they're always more than we think. God's always doing more in our lives and through our lives than we think or that we know at the time. You, you, ever, you ever had moments where you look back and you realize that? We, we're gonna see people in the book of Ruth doing very normal, everyday things. Coming to a point of crisis and decision. Relocating their family in order to find opportunity. Falling in love, getting married, having a child. We're gonna see people just doing stuff that you and I just, just do each day or, or whatever the case is. You don't fall in love every day, but you get what I'm saying, right? We're just gonna look at these everyday things and we're gonna get a chance to see that through all of those everyday ordinary things, God is up to something extraordinary, all right? And we can never take that for granted. So God is doing more in and through your life than you know. We'll get to see that in the book of Ruth. Last thing I'll say before we get to the text. Uh, there's a, a, a woman by the name of Carolyn Custis James, and she wrote a commentary on the book of Ruth. She said something in the opening of that commentary that I think is really helpful for us as we approach the book. It'll help us to approach the book in the right way. And here's what she said, quote, First and foremost, God is the true hero of this story. No matter how captivating the other characters may be, our top priority is to discover what the Bible reveals about God. Ruth is viewed often as a simple love story, a shining moment at a dark time in Israelite history. While Ruth teaches us a lot about love, the book also is packed with deep insights about God and his relationship with his people. This can be said about any portion of the Bible, so whenever we study God's word, our main quest is always to discover what he is telling us about himself. If we marginalize God or make someone else the focal point, we will always miss the main message of the book. Always. End quote. I just thought that was helpful. That even as we go through Ruth and even as we acknowledge, this is, this is one of the only two books in the Bible named after a female. It's the only, only book in the Bible named after a Gentile woman. 
right? It's the, it's the only book in the Bible that really highlights front and center God using an interracial marriage to move his purposes forward. All, you know, all those kinds of things. If we, those things are great and wonderful. If we marginalize God while we look at and celebrate those things, we're going to miss the main point of the book. And we don't want to do that. We're, here at Redemption Hill, we're not in the habit of trying to miss the main message of the book, right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that together. And so let me pray, and then we'll get into Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We'll read that, and then see what else God wants to say to us this morning. Father, help us uh, as we go through the book of Ruth to hear your voice. Help us to receive what we're learning about you and what we can learn from, from the examples of, of you interacting with the people in this story. Help us to be shaped and to be formed into the people you desire for us to be. Make us more like your son Jesus in what we learn. And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Ruth chapter one, verses one through six. <clears throat> now, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Father, again, help us. Help us as we study this part of the book of Ruth this morning and try to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment after I tell you a story, we'll look back at this passage and we'll see in verses 1 and 2 the crisis that made Naomi leave Bethlehem. We'll see in verses three through five, the suffering she endured in Moab, and then we'll see in verse six, the good news that led her back home. But first, I'll tell you a little story. We, we went to Disney World in October. As me, Heather, it was really Heather's side of the family, so her brother, her two sisters, uh, our family, and between us at the time, we had 11 kids. We took 10 of them, and we only left the, the little toddler at home, but, uh, which I'm sure later he'll be looking at, at pictures and wondering where he is, which is, we'll, we'll have somebody explain that to him. But anyway, we all, we all went to Disney World, and it, I forget which day it was, because it was all a blur to me. All I know is we walked 10 miles every day, and we were exhausted at the end of each day. But we were in the animal kingdom. We had some time in between fast passes. You know, if you've been to Disney World, you, you hopefully know what that is. If not, you should try that next time, right? We went and had some time. We decided, you know, Let's take the kids to watch this little stage play of Finding Nemo. What could go wrong? Yeah. So we go. We get in there. Got got not too big of a line. We we go in. I'm in the worst seat possible. I mean, the aisle's way over here. I'm I'm edged in against a wall. 
There, there's like 50 rows in front of me, 20 behind me. I, I can't go anywhere. I'm locked in and I'm holding our youngest daughter. She just wants to sit with me. And so she's right next to me. I'm holding her. And she was five and a, she's six today, by the way, it's her birthday, but she's five and a half at the time. And, and we're sitting there and the lights go down and all of a sudden it hits me. I remember how the movie starts. And I'm thinking, no, they, they won't do that. Not at Disney World, it's the happiest place on earth. They'll skip that part. I mean, they, they shorten things for the stage play. Or even if they show it, it'll, it'll go right over her head. I mean, she's five and a half, right? Not only do they show Nemo's mom, spoiler alert, by the way, Nemo's mom dies <laughs> really early in, in, in the movie. It, I gotta be able to spoil it at this point. If you haven't seen Finding Nemo, that's a, that's a you thing, right? That's, that can't be on me at this point. But in any, in any case, the, so Nemo's mom dies early on. They show it, and not only does it not go over Julia's head, it goes right back into my ear. I mean, that girl screamed for what, 10? I mean, she screamed and cried for like 10 straight minutes, and everybody around us keeps looking at me. I'm like, it's not me screaming. I mean, it's, you know, it's a threw my daughter under the bus, but you know, here, no, it, anyway, why did I tell you that story? Yes. So the, the, the beginning of the book of Ruth is kind of like a, a Disney animated film. Everybody dies. You know, I still need therapy for Bambi. And it, so here it is. It's just everybody you think is going to be important is dying. But, but by the time we get to verse 6, which is, which is why I included verse 6 today, by the way, you start to see a glimmer of light and a glimmer of hope. You, you start to turn the tapestry over and you begin to see what God is doing. Naomi is going to suffer some horrific things in these first five verses. And you cannot shake the realization that God is doing something. He is moving heaven and earth for this family to get a young Moabite woman named Ruth back to Bethlehem. And this is kind of how it went. It started with a crisis that made Naomi leave Bethlehem. Here she was in verse one. There was a famine, and more than likely this is God responding to the sin of his people in the time of the judges. There's a famine, maybe like the one we read about in Judges chapter six, right before God raised up Gideon. A famine not from drought, but rather from Amalekites and Midianites coming in to steal and leave nothing for the Israelites. We don't know, but that could be what it is. And this famine is, is hitting them, and I can imagine them sitting at home one night, and, and here, here's Naomi saying, E, what are we going to do? Because, you know, if, if your husband's name was Elimelech, you'd, you'd probably call him E, you know. It's much, much quicker. What are we going to do? And as the husband, it was his decision to make, and he's probably sitting there saying, Man, I, I don't know, you know let, me, let me think for a minute. I mean, we could, we, should we stay or should we go? We, you can, some of you hear that song now, I just did that to you. But you, so here it is, I don't know, you know, let's, let's, let's move. It wasn't just a famine that caused Naomi to leave Bethlehem. The real cause of her leaving Bethlehem was a guy called Elimelech. It was his decision to make for the family. He decided that's what they were going to do, and she, she went along. Have you ever just had to follow somebody else when they were making a decision? Just felt like you had to go along? Maybe you agreed, maybe you didn't. Maybe you weren't sure what to think or feel about it. I know, I know a lady in the room who could tell you that sometimes 
your husband makes decisions and, and it's, it's not always, you know, it doesn't always turn out to be the best. But, but some of you have been there and this is what happened with this family. There was a crisis, a famine that led them away from Bethlehem. And I don't know, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us that everything Naomi is about to suffer in Moab was the direct result of that decision, but we can't, we can't assume that they're completely separate either. Because even if they decided to leave Bethlehem, you could have gone other places. Now Moab was pretty nearby, so I could understand if Elimelech's gonna move his family, he's saying, you know, if there's bread over in Moab, it's only about a 90 mile journey away. If, if my face is the Dead Sea, they were over here in Bethlehem, they would go up through Jerusalem, over to Jericho, across the Jordan River, around the backside of the Dead Sea to the east, down across the Arnon River, and then they would be in the fields of Moab. But you could actually see, you, is that right? You could, you could actually see from Bethlehem the hills of Moab right across the Dead Sea. That was about a 40 mile straight line distance. So it just made sense, okay, let, let's, we need bread, let's go over to Moab, it's close enough. And so geographically, Moab was not very far away but you could not find a place that was further away spiritually. Moab served a god named Chemosh who demanded child sacrifice. This was not the sort of place that followers of Yahweh, the one true God, should have taken their family for relief given the serious spiritual concerns that would meet them in this place. They're not going as missionaries, they're going for personal relief. Listen, sometimes we, we get to these points where we need to make big decisions, don't we? You, you, have you had to do that recently? Sometimes it's a decision about something we might purchase, whether a home or a vehicle or, or, or something. Sometimes it's a decision about where we'll go to school or for some of us whether we'll go back to school. Sometimes it's a decision about whether to continue or end a dating relationship or an engagement. Sometimes it's a decision like the one Elimelech makes for his family here, a decision to relocate the family in order to provide for those under your care. We've all faced one or more of these decisions. We don't always know it at the time, but sometimes these decisions are so big that they will literally determine the course of the rest of your life. Some decisions are so big that your life is forever different after you make them and there really is no going back to a second chance. God can always move you forward and his grace covers more than we can ever imagine, but you can never quite get back to where you were after making the decision. How do you approach those moments? How do you approach making those decisions? Where do you go for guidance? if indeed you even go for guidance? What does it look like practically for you to seek God's guidance at those times? Have you considered how your choices will impact your ability to raise a Christian family in a, a time and a place that is growing increasingly hostile to our faith and way of life? If you are thinking about moving, have you considered whether or not there is a gospel-believing and Bible-teaching church where you are planning to go? How important is that to you as you consider other factors? 
Or is the only thing that matters the set of material concerns that you have in mind? Look, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to give Elimelech a hard time for saying stuff's really hard here, I've got a family to provide for, and so I need to make some moves and, and figure out what we're gonna do. I, I, I commend him for taking responsibility like that. I'm not gonna, not gonna give him a hard time for that. But it's interesting that his name actually means my God is king. That's what Elimelech means. And so there they were in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And you would think that if your God is king, surely he can provide bread for you and your family in the house of bread. It may very well be that there is some sliver of a lack of faith in Elimelech as he decides to move, and he just makes the most pragmatic decision. He begins to look at Moab, he sees provision for material needs, despite the spiritual concerns and traps that await them, and he says, you know what, it's all worth it. We'll go there, we'll have plenty of bread. After a while, we're just going, verse one, to sojourn there, it's just for a little while. And then, something that they could not have predicted begins to happen. Verse three, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Verse two said that they remained there, not just sojourned, and now verse three, Elimelech is gone. The, The man who made the decision for their family that Naomi was following to this place, whether she would have made the same decision or not, he's gone. And she's left to pick up the pieces. Fortunately, she at least still has her two sons. As a widow, in this time, things are going to be increasingly hard for Naomi. She was counting on her husband, but now at least she has two sons to inherit the estate, to provide for her through their work. She's gonna be okay, she's not destitute. She's still got these men in her life. And then, the suffering compounds. Look at verse four. Elimelech's not there, I don't know how Elimelech would have influenced his children, what sort of an influence he would have had in in who they chose to marry. But the Bible says that these, Malin and Kilian, took Moabite wives. Now, they were not supposed to do that. As a Jewish boy, you were not supposed to marry outside of your race at this time. Not because God had a problem with people of two different skin colors marrying each other. Not because God had an issue with different ethnicities being married to one another, but because of the fact that when you got married to someone outside of your race as a a Jewish person, in this time a worshiper of Yahweh, you were actually marrying someone with a different faith. That was the issue. These people served a different God. The Moabites, again, served Chemosh, who demanded child sacrifice. Son, you probably don't want to marry a woman who believes in child sacrifice. Well then, Dad, maybe you shouldn't have taken your boys to that place. Some of the big decisions we make have implications that affect multiple generations to come. Some of you, some of you, where you locate yourself in a church has impact on your children. I mean, it it can have impact on multiple generations to come. These These are big decisions. 
And so here we are, these took Moabite wives. I should probably say something. God, God has never been against two people of different skin colors marrying each other. He's never been against that. People have thought that in this country historically. They have believed that. And in fact, it's, it's causing the church in America a huge problem today, right? Because here, here's what's happening. People are saying, well, people used to take the Bible to say that you couldn't have a husband with brown skin and, and a wife with white skin. You, you couldn't bring those two together. God is opposed to that, right? See, it says right here in the Bible that they shouldn't marry people of other ethnicities. And that sort of biblical justification was used all the time to say that the line between what is permitted and what is prohibited leaves interracial marriage on the outside of what God permits. And so people have said, you know, we used to believe that as Christians, but we know better now. So now we redraw that line, and, and it's drawn now in such a way that we can include interracial marriages in, in what God approves of and what God permits. We understand that now. So aren't we, aren't we still doing the same thing with this homosexual union thing? Like, aren't we still on the wrong side of history? Aren't we, don't we need to move the line a little bit again just to make sure that we're including everything God would approve of? I mean, after all, society is changing its mind. We changed our mind back then, why aren't we changing our mind again? Because really, what determines what is permitted in marriage is what society thinks. No, see, we weren't, we weren't just on the wrong side of history when we prohibited interracial marriages within the church. We were on the wrong side of God's word. You can read Numbers chapter 12 for yourself. God had no problem with Moses marrying a Cushite wife. No problem. In fact, when Aaron and, and Miriam, his siblings, got upset about it and spoke out against him because of it, well, M Moses, does God only speak to him? I mean, look at that Cushite wife. I mean, obviously he didn't hear from God on that one. God has to come back to Aaron and Miriam and say, hey, hey, hold on. Moses, get, get your siblings. Bring them all. Bring them all. We're going to have a little conference here. Just, just me and you three. Imagine that conference. <laughs> Talk about conviction. So here it is. He brings them all together and he looks at Aaron and Miriam and says, now if I speak to a prophet among you, I use dreams and visions and that kind of thing indirectly. Moses, I speak to him face to face. And in other words, they would have gotten the message. God is saying, Aaron, Miriam, if I had a problem with what Moses did there, marrying that Cushite woman, I would have told him. I speak to him all the time. Do I look like the sort of God who has a problem letting people know when I have a problem with them? Were you there in Egypt? I know how to do that. Why did you think you should take it upon yourself to replace me and start making the rules about what's permitted and what's not? So we have explicit example in God's word to show us he never had a problem with two people of different skin colors or ethnicities who worship the same God coming together in marriage. We have no such example in scripture of God approving of a homosexual union, none. And therefore, as a Christian church, a believing church, no basis for approving of it. Everyone look at me. I know some of you don't agree with what I just said. I'm praying that you will diligently search the scriptures and repent. God is not changing his mind about this and neither should you. 
Unless, of course, you believe the wrong thing, then you should change your mind. And may God grant you the courage to do that before a world that will attack you for doing so. Lord, help us to stand where you stand and help me to move on. In Jesus' name, amen. Naomi is suffering terribly, terribly in Moab. Things get worse. Not only do her sons take Moabite wives, the Bible says here they lived, verse 4, they lived there for about 10 years. Do you see that? Now, guys, you might miss this. I missed it as a guy. Some of you, some of you probably didn't miss it. But it, it took a woman, Carolyn James, again, I'm reading her commentary. It took a woman to point out to me, hey, Raymond, guy, you, you, you can't just read this as years. They were married for 10 years, no kids. And I'm thinking, man, that's, that's, see, they weren't like us. They weren't like, hey, let's get married for seven years, we'll just travel. No, when they got married, the point was to have kids. You, you raised that family. So that, this is 10 years of trying and dealing with infertility and everything that came along with that. And I'm reading that thinking that 10 years, that she said, no, if you're a man, you're probably tempted to think about this in years. You need to think about this in terms of months. Naomi has two daughters-in-law, and for each one of them, that is 120 separate disappointments, 240 total for Naomi. And at the end of all of that, 240 separate disappointments, it doesn't end with the good news of a positive test. It ends in verse five. Both Malin and Killian die too. Naomi in this time is now destitute. Your value as a woman is measured by the men that you're connected to. Your hope as a woman, when you grow older in particular, for being cared for is connected to the men that you have in your life. She has no men. In Bethlehem, she had no bread. In, in Moab, she has no men. And at this time, in this place, it was actually that latter situation that was more dire than the first. And so after the crisis that led her to move away from Bethlehem, she suffers greatly in Moab, but now we start to turn the tapestry over. You ready for some good news? We start to turn the tapestry over and look at verse six. Then she arose. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. If you read this quickly, you'll think finally it's Naomi's decision to make. She had to follow Elimelech. She was still at the, at the whim of her sons in Moab. Are we gonna stay or go? And they're like, mom, we're not going anywhere. We found ourselves some wives, we're staying put. After all, we can't take them away from everyone they know. And, and, and Naomi's like, what do you mean? That's kind of insensitive, isn't it? Here I am away from everyone I know. And, she, and so finally it's her decision to make. Will she stay? Will she go back? She decides she's going back to Bethlehem, to the promised land of God, trusting that he's able to provide for them and believing the good news. Now watch this. I want you, if you don't get anything else today, this is what I want you to get. So everybody's paying attention now. Are you ready? I gotta say something that means something to you, right? After that. All right, they arose and what I want you to catch is this. She arises with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. The next word is what? For. Everybody see that? 
You would think that this is a decision initiated by Naomi, unless you read the Bible carefully. She arose to go back for, because she heard something. She heard the good news that God had visited his people and provided for them the bread that they need. Do you see that? The good news that God has visited his people and provided the bread that they need has the power to turn lives around. I'll say that again. The good news that God has visited his people and provided for their needs, provided the bread that they need, not just, not just for their bodies, but for their souls. The good news that God has visited his people and provided the bread that they need turns lives around. It will raise people up from a state of, of spiritual lethargy and backsliding and it will, it will bring along with those people who have wandered off, those who have always been estranged from God because they were in a pagan society. Or, it, it will just raise people up and turn their lives around and bring them back home to the God who created them. The gospel, the good news. There, there was a time coming and the book of Ruth points to it. But much later, much later, some 1,000, 1,300 plus years later, God was going to once again visit his people, only this time, in a way that he had never done before, in an unprecedented and unparalleled way, never to be superseded. He was going to visit his people in his son, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And he was not simply going to provide them with bread for their bodies. He wasn't simply going to meet their material needs. He wasn't simply going to heal their physical diseases. He was not simply going to give them bread. He was going to be that bread. Look at John chapter six, verse 32 through 35. You can see it there. Jesus had performed a miracle and some people found him. And you know how it is if you, you provide food for people, they'll show up. Right, they'll show up again. What you got for me? What you got for me, Jesus? Hey, where's that bread? And Jesus looks at them and in John chapter six, verse 32, he says, look, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. <laughs> this is how they approach Jesus. You know, when Moses showed up as a man of God, he gave us bread. And then hands go out, you know, what you got? Jesus says, it wasn't Moses, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, huh, we'll take that bread. Give us this bread, sir. Give it to us always. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, listen, I don't think you get it. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. When God promised bread in the wilderness, it, that, that thing came down. People, people were told bread was coming. They were expecting bread to come, and it, and it came. And then they looked at it when they came. They said, what, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? They, they were expecting bread. They were told it was coming. But when it came, they didn't recognize it to be the bread that they were told was coming. And, and here Jesus is, the bread of life, standing. They were told. We were told in so many ways, whether the book of Ruth, we, we were told he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. There's gonna be a child born, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can't help it. There's gonna be a child born to a young woman 
that, that God is going to do all kinds of things to, to, get, to get her in Bethlehem to give birth to this child, and that child is going to, eventually Jesus is going to come through that line. And, and, and so he, he, I, got, I got way ahead of myself, right? Read the whole book. And here it is. Jesus is being announced in so many ways, and then he comes, he shows up, he, he gives sight to the blind, he raises the dead, he heals lepers, and people still don't recognize him to be the bread. They look at him and they say, what is it? Who is this who speaks to storms and they stop? Some of us are still looking at Jesus saying, who, who, who is it? What is he? What is he? Look, don't you know? Don't you know? Does not some part of you recognize who he is? I talked about big decisions. When God sets the good news of his son before you, what Jesus has done through his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, how he healed and proved in many ways that he is the bread of God from heaven, that he is the one and only son of God, that in him and in him alone is the life that our souls need. When Jesus does that, and God sets him before you and proves that he has visited his people and, and given them bread, food for their souls, now you have a decision. You must respond. This is the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never hunger, never thirst. Your soul will be eternally satisfied when you receive him. You know exactly what it looked like and what it took for you to pick yourself up today, even on Daylight Savings Day, right? With the time changing on you, you know exactly what it looked like and, and required for you to come to this room. But Jesus' promise in John chapter 6, verse 35 is not for those who come to a particular room. He said, if anyone comes to me, he will never hunger, she will never thirst. Have you simply come to this room or have you come to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life? Lord, help us, help us to come to you. Let our time as believers now in communion remind us of our need to come to you for forgiveness, for eternal life, and for the ongoing declaration of the sacrifice that made that possible for us. And Lord, for those who are in the room who have never come to you in faith, never come to you in repentance, then I pray that you would bring them now to the moment of decision. That you would convince them there is no husband, there is no son standing in their way, it's their decision to make. You have initiated this moment you have visited us in your son. You have provided all we need for forgiveness and eternal life in his life, death, and resurrection. And now you set him before us and tell us, choose life. I pray that everyone listening this morning would choose life for himself or herself in response to your gospel. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. If you're serving communion, you can get the elements and take your places now. And when you're ready, those of us who have come to Jesus, believed on him for forgiveness and eternal life, then come and receive these reminders, the bread that represents his body, the cup that represents his blood, shed for us that our sins might be forgiven.
And, and for those who have never come to Jesus that way and you're sitting here and you're realizing, man, I, I don't even know this guy up there. Why am I sitting here feeling like all of heaven is awaiting what I do next? Listen, I can't bring you to that point. No one in this room can bring you to that point. I want you to realize that if you're there and that's what you're thinking and feeling, the same God who caused Naomi to rise up and go back to Bethlehem at the hearing of good news is the one who's causing your soul to stand at attention right now. And he invites you. He invites you to have your sins forgiven forever and to take a share in his family through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you, if you say yes to him in your hearts, he knows exactly what to do with your life from this point on. And you also then would be welcome to join the rest of the believing church in this moment. Father, help us as we come to celebrate your grace and your goodness toward us. <clears throat> to trust in the most difficult moments of life that there is another side to the tapestry and that it's still true. And we can still know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Come when you're ready.